Well, first of all, everyone, thanks so much for sticking with us in terms of tech. And I'm massively uh, apologetic about what's gone wrong. I confess I don't know what happened, um, but hopefully we've got a temporary fix um, for us this morning. And uh, if you've stuck with us online, thank you, um, for, uh, especially to you. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. Our gracious Father, we uh, have already experienced this morning how frail and weak and um, unknowledgeable we are, and yet you are good, and you are all-knowing, and you love us, and you speak to us. And so we pray that you would tend to us as we receive your word now. Please help us to receive it. Um, give us hearts ready to listen and obey as we've just sung. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how strong is your grip? I don't know when it happened, but I recently realized that I can no longer complete a full set of monkey bars at the playground. As a youngster, I could grip on and swing from bar to bar uh, without losing hold, but now two out of the, my three children can, um, can go further than me on the monkey bars, and I'm sure the third one isn't far behind. It's a bit embarrassing. You know, I'm not sure I want to go to the playground anymore. <laughs> there must be a market for um, playground workouts and training for dads. Well, we finished last week thinking about the nature of our grip on Christ and his grip on us. Another way of thinking about that is in terms of faith. How strong is your faith? How would you answer that question? Does it matter? What is faith anyway? Well, the nature and function of faith is at the heart of things in this passage. And we're going to walk through it in four sections. And first, let's see what faith is not. Our passage is a continuation of Jesus' bread of life discourse. There's no obvious break between verse 40 and 41, although the focus shifts from the whole crowd to this particular subsection, which John describes as the Jews. Now, we've said this before, but I want to make it absolutely clear um, that John is not anti-Jewish. So he's not singling out the Jews because he's, he, he thinks there's something inherently wrong with them. Jesus and all the first disciples were Jews. And so when the Gospel writer refers to the Jews, it's most often a reference to the Jewish leaders at the time, those who were supposed to be leaders of the faith, but, as we see through the Gospel, they're often the most hostile to Jesus. So it's no surprise in verse 41 that they are said to grumble. Grumble is, uh, or grumbling is a way of expressing disapproval, dissatisfaction, and even disbelief. Now, where have we seen that before? Where have we seen people grumbling with disapproval? Perhaps our children uh, might remember um, from what we've uh, already looked at this morning. In the context of Jesus' teaching about manna, the grumbling of the Jews here clearly mirrors the grumbling of God's people in the wilderness. Then they grumbled about Moses and Aaron, who were agents of God's provision, 
But in doing so, they actually grumbled against the Lord, the Lord God. Here, the Jewish leaders grumble about Jesus, the Lord himself, the Son sent by the Father. And just like before, the problem is not so much with the message. There's nothing deficient about Jesus' teaching. The reason for their grumbling and lack of understanding is that their hearts are hardened with unbelief. John Calvin says, their poisoned souls irritate them. Their taste is distempered. Just as COVID-19 impairs our taste buds and our smell, so self-deceit and sin impairs any pleasure in the food that Jesus brings. So the eyes of their hearts cannot see Jesus the right way. And so they misread the signs. Verse 42, they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? In other words, he looks pretty ordinary to me. How can he come down from heaven if we know his parents and he looks just like us? Now, there's nothing wrong with those questions per se. Sparked by awesome cutlery, our kids ask lots of questions like that. Like, um, if God doesn't have a birthday and Jesus is God the Son, why does Jesus have a birthday? Amazing question. If God is spirit and doesn't have a body, and Jesus is God the Son, how does Jesus have a body? If God cannot die, and Jesus is God the Son, how can he die? It's the grumbling of the Jewish leaders, not the questions that opposes faith. Unlike our kids, their posture is one of distrust and suspicion of self-confidence and self-elevation, not humble questioning. So there's a vast difference between grumbling and, say, wrestling with difficult theological questions, or even crying out to God with our questions in lament, being honest, and, and even complaining to God. By the way, if you're a woman at St. Paul's and you're free, please do sign up for that event, that Hive event next week, where Annabelle will be teaching on that very topic of lament. If you're not a woman, or you can't make it, well, Mark Brokott's book, which we've uh, plugged up here before, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament, is a good place to turn. Grumbling is not a mark of healthy Christian faith. Grumbling is born out of opposition and distrust. It questions God's goodness and his providence in the light of our circumstances. It's a close cousin of bitterness envy, quarreling, and self-autonomy. If you're conscious that you are grumbling a lot, that's something to think about and to pray on and seek support with. Because our grumbling belongs to that same line of, that same succession of unbelief with the Jewish leaders here and with the people in the wilderness. Grumbling is not of faith. So, more positively then, what is faith? And there are so many ways we can answer that question. Uh, today I want to offer just three marks of faith that arise from Jesus' wonderful teaching in this passage. First, faith is a gift secured by God. 
Verse 43. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Verse 44 is why you are a Christian. From beginning to end, God is the ultimate agent of faith. Our calling to Jesus Christ is decreed by God. It's not something initiated or caused by us. And our calling is secured by God. It's not something that we have the capacity to earn or maintain or even to lose. By the Holy Spirit, we are convicted of sin, our hearts are illuminated, and we are persuaded and enabled and moved to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. That's sometimes known as God's effectual calling of us. Now, I realize that that might throw up some really big questions. For instance, you might ask, does that mean that I'm drawn to Christ against my will? Well, it is true to say that God renews our wills and compels us to Christ. However, it's worth remembering that that is not a damaging or violent movement. We're not drawn to something or someone nasty or evil or harmful. Rather, from a, from a distorted inclination towards sin and corruption, which we'd, by which we'd naturally exclude ourselves from God's grace of coming to Christ, our hearts are captured, captivated even. And we are drawn to the good, the true, and the beautiful one. As Augustine says, we are drawn by love. Faith is a gift entirely secured by God. It is from him, but it is for us, for our blessing. What an immense Privilege! What a measurable gift that he should call me and you for no reason at all in us, but just out of his sheer good pleasure. Still, that might lead to another question. So what exactly is my part in all of this? Does God's effectual calling effectively make me a robot? Well, the answer is no. By the Spirit, our very souls yearn and long for God, like thirsty deers who, who pant for streams of water. This is what we're made for. Faith is a gift through which we receive gladly, and now we say, yes, Lord. So in that sense, of course we're involved. But the point is, what we reach out for and receive from God in Christ is already accomplished by him. I can't remember who said it, but someone once described our response of faith as being like a seal of God's grace. Augustine uses the analogy of a tree, which we care for. We tend to it outwardly, we prune its branches, we water it, but it's God who causes it to grow. And verse 45 shows us one of the ways that God does that. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. Growth comes from learning. The revelation of the prophets of old and the coming of Christ are all, 
are all part of that same reality of, of teaching and learning, of God revealing himself to us. And so if you want to hear from the Father, then listen to his word. He is speaking. Listen to the word spoken and revealed. Listen to the word who has come in the flesh and made his dwelling among us. Which brings us to the next aspects of faith. Faith is a gift secured by God. But second, faith is belief centered on Christ. Seeing is believing, we sometimes say. Usually when we're skeptical about something or I'll believe it when I see it. That's the approach that lies behind much of today's skepticism about the Christian faith. The trouble with that mindset is that our eyes, so to speak, sometimes deceive us. None of us see everything around us. None of us possess perfect vision, the perfect vision of reality. If we did, we'd be able to spot truth from falsehood, good from evil. Sometimes what we think we see turns out to be something completely different. At other times, we only see what we want to see. So when it comes to God, how can any of us know the incomprehensible or see the invisible or dwell with the intangible? Well, we can't as we are. But Jesus says, you can truly know God by putting your faith in the one who is from God and who is God. Verse 46, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Here is Jesus revealing himself to be, in the words of the Nicene Creed, the only Son of God eternally begotten from the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. The Son is indivisible from the Father. And just as the Father has authority to grant life in himself, so the Son, as we saw last week, is the very source and substance of life. Verse 40, 47 says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. What does that mean for us? Well, it means that there is no learning, no hearing or seeing except through him, through Jesus Christ. And if that wasn't extraordinary enough, here's the even more shocking part. Jesus says there is no life except through his death. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. See if you can fill in the gaps on this slide on the screens. Feel free to shout out the answers. Um, again, it's from the Nicene Creed, the next bit. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate, I think I heard, 
from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scripture. He ascended into heaven, which we celebrated on Thursday, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Not only is Jesus Christ God from God, light from light, true God from true God, all of those things indicate Christ's human nature. He has two natures, divine and human, God and man. In awesome cutlery terms, the one who doesn't have a birthday was born into our world and has a birthday. Why? Well, because of those two little words at the beginning of that paragraph. For us. For us. For us, he came and took on flesh and he died in what was ours so that we might receive from him only what is his. So if you want to know God, to know the true food our souls hunger for, then feed on Jesus Christ by faith. Eat is an exhortation to faith. Christ is the giver, the provider, and host of the meal. And now he says, bon appetit. <laughs> Come and enjoy what I have to give to you. Faith is belief centered on Christ. The question is, what does that mean? What does that look like for us? Well, third and finally, faith is an appetite nurtured in Christ. One of the big dangers of middle-class Christianity, for those of us who fit into that category, is that we tend to measure faith according to what is cerebral. We associate cleverness with Christian maturity. Of course, there is a sense in which the gospel is communicated with words, and so it's good to grow in learning and understanding. And we've already heard Jesus refer to the teaching of the prophets. But the ability to read and recall large amounts of information is not what Jesus demands of us. Instead, he simply invites us to come and eat and drink something that we can all do, from the youngest to the oldest. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Jesus is not, of course, talking about feeding on him physically, by the way. Rather, we should think about eating his flesh and drinking his blood in, in two ways. First, it's about receiving the benefits of his passion, his suffering and his death. You see, in the Old Testament, blood is a symbol for death and sacrifice. In Leviticus 17, the Lord prohibited the Israelites from consuming blood for, he said, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. And so with that background in mind, Jesus' words about the blood connect to his death and to sacrifice and atonements of sins. Now, there is a warning here. 
the COVID-19 vaccines may protect us against the dangerous virus. But the warning here is, if you don't receive the medicine of Jesus' blood shed on the cross, you will die. If we reject his life-giving grace, we cannot share in it. So receive the benefits of his passion. Look to the cross where you find pardon and forgiveness and wholeness and new life. In frankly scandalous terms, Jesus invites us to drink his blood, again, not literally, by drawing on the, on the work of the cross. However, feeding on Christ by faith means more than receiving the benefits of his death. It also means receiving the benefits of his life, of life in him. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. Fascinatingly, uh, the word for eat in this verse is different from the word translated to eat in verse 53. Now, why would Jesus use two different words for eat? Well, honestly, I don't know for sure. Still, it's worth noting that the word for, for eating in verse 53, estio, has more of a, a passive sense of simply just taking something into your mouth. But the word for eating in this verse, verse 54, is more active in the sense of munching, of chewing, of eating audibly, uh, like you might with a, a, a big Sunday roast dinner. And not just once, it has the sense of continual feasting. I'm not going to demonstrate what that sounds like, but you get the idea. I think that might be why Jesus speaks of remaining in him. Verse 55, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. When you come to Jesus by faith, you will truly receive life in him once and for all. But faith also needs feeding. And the wonderful thing is, the person who seeks to be fed will be filled. As we abide in Christ, he promises to abide in us and to nourish us. Jesus himself is the bread of life. Through him, our very beings are fed and, and nourished. This is the real food and drink we need. So looking for life and satisfaction in any anything else elsewhere. It's like trying to live on a diet of, of junk food. Eventually, we'll just suffer the consequences. Not so with Jesus. Just as the living Father, he says, sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live, will live forever. Of course, there are a, a variety of means that Christ gives us to be nourished in our union with him, in our, our joining with him. He's incredibly kind to us uh, by sharing um, his, his grace in lots of different ways, especially because, as we remembered on Thursday, he's no longer with us in body, physically. But one way it shouldn't surprise us is through our fellowship with his body, his spiritual body. The church. 
If you wish to draw from Christ, you and I need to be in the body of Christ. And so our gathering together is central to our receiving from him. And of course, for a variety of reasons, that is not easy for us at the moment. But please take the time to think through the implications of that as we emerge from lockdown, as things ease up and we come together again, or we're able to. It's also why, in ordinary times, we frequently share together at the Lord's table. That meal of bread and wine is a sacrament, a sign of this reality, the the reality that Christ is speaking about in this passage. As we partake of it together, we are both reminded of Christ's blood shed for us on the cross, and we are ministered to by him in his life. Faith is a gift secured by God. Faith is belief centered on Christ. And faith is an appetite nurtured in Christ. I'm conscious that we've covered some really big and deep things this morning. And as we close, I want to say, whether you're young or old, if you can't comprehend all that we've spoken about today, that's okay. In fact, it's more than okay. I certainly can't comprehend it. Nor could the disciples. Just look, one verse after our passage, um, uh, to verse 60. Look, what the, look at what the disciples say in verse 60. They say, this is a hard teaching. Well, indeed it is. So don't be discouraged. In fact, may our inability to grasp these things fully whet our appetites for more. Because the wonderful thing is, whatever your age or stage in the Christian life, if you hunger for Christ, He will fill you up. Let's pray together. Jesus told Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Lord, we praise and thank you for your wonderful grace. Thank you for captivating our wandering hearts and bringing us to Christ by faith. Our Father, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, please give us an increasing sense of your love for us, which we share in and with your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. stand to come up.